I'm so glad we get to share this time together this morning. If you've got a Bible, you want to go ahead and start preloading that thing to Titus. That's where we're going to be for the next several weeks. And so I have a question just to get you thinking this morning, kind of get the brain cells activated. How do you get somebody to do the right thing? How do you get somebody to even just uh, want to do the right thing? It's a problem that a city in Maryland on the East Coast had with one of their residents. His name was George. Apologies to all the Georges out there. This George just did not want to get with the community program. George had a ton of junk in his yard. And you might think, well, this, does this really just turn out to be a case of an overactive HOA, Homeowners Association gone wild? Are they just being nitpicky? No, George had accumulated old boats and uh, abandoned cars and crab pots and fishing gear and old vending machines and just garbage. And it was like an episode of hoarders, but outside for the whole community to see. And so the city for two years was actually pretty patient and said, hey, George, just clean up the yard, okay? Notice after notice, just refused to pay attention. After two years, they stepped it up a bit and they gave him some warnings, like you need to really get this taken care of. And official type things. After four years of not cleaning up the yard, they finally just fined him $10,000, paid a cleaning crew to come do it for him, but it didn't last. Now we're seven years into the city trying to get George to keep his property clean where they said, this is it. You now have 30 days. And if you don't clean up the yard, we're going to put you in jail for 60 days. Okay. So let's just go through this. The community just wants the yard to be clean. The neighbors just want the yard to be cleaned up. George's family wanted the yard to be cleaned up. They were worried for him. They came and they started throwing junk away. You know those big 30-yard construction bins that you'll see sometimes have a job, like almost as long as a semi? They filled four of those for George. His family came and did that. Still didn't make a dent in the junk, so George ended up going to jail for 60 days, at which point George finally said, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have cleaned the yard up. True story. I feel for George. I don't know if he was just uh, suffering with mental illness or, you know, d depression, if he was a uh, libertarian, like, how dare you tell me what to do with my yard, or if he was just lazy. Whatever the problem was, there was a, an ideal the city had. There was this idea of what is good for a yard, and he wasn't conforming to it. How do you coerce someone to do what they don't want to do? If you're a parent, you know exactly the struggle. How do you get a two-year-old terrorist to go to bed and go to sleep? eat, whatever it is. And, and it never seems to get easier as they get older, does it? If you're, if you're a caregiver, you wrestle with that. If you're in law enforcement or code enforcement, you certainly have this struggle. How do we get people to just drive the speed limit and, and build buildings the way they're supposed to? If you're a, a manager, a business owner, a professional of any kind, you've got responsibility for people on your work team and you want them to you know, at least be ethical and to follow the company's way of doing things. So you've got this struggle. How do I get my employees to do the right thing? If you're a coach, if you're a teacher, if you're an educator, if you're a counselor, if you work with people in any way, you know what it's like to struggle with this idea that I see where you are and I see where you need to be. And how do I get you from here to here? You may even struggle with that yourself. I have an ideal of what I think a good person should be. And I know myself that I'm not always there. How do I get myself to do the right thing? Anybody else struggle with this besides me, with the people around you or the people sitting next to you or yourself when you look in the mirror. This is a dilemma that we all face. And it's even a dilemma, if you think about it, God has with every single one of us. God looks at all of us and says, I know where you are and I know where you should be. How, do, how does God, the creator of the universe, get us to do the right thing, to be truly good people? In other words, let me just express it this way. How does God take uh, completely broken, bad people who do bad things and turn them into holy good people, and that's W-H and just H-holy, 
uh, people who do completely good things. So there's actually, this is where we get back to Titus because the reason this is in the Bible is because Titus was a church leader who was struggling with exactly this. How do I get the people in all the churches that I'm responsible for to, to become good, godly Christians? So you got a Bible? This is one of those times as we go through this series, if you don't have an analog version of the Bible, this would be a good chance to get one, like a paper one. I know some of you use the Bible app on your phones and that's awesome. One of the benefits of having a paper version is that you can underline things, circle things, uh, draw lines to other things, write little notes in the Bible as you think of them. And then you can kind of see, you can compare things that happen here to here, because we're gonna try to tie this together because this isn't just in the Bible. Titus isn't just something, oh, 2000 years ago. This is incredibly relevant to us today. And the reason this is in in the Bible, if you're finding Titus, and I encourage you to do that, is that uh, the Apostle Paul, who's a top-level church leader, had sent Titus to a place where he was in charge of a number of churches, and Titus was struggling with, how do I get these people in these churches to grow up? And so Paul wrote him a letter just saying, hey, remember when I sent you there? Uh, let me just remind you what you need to do, but let me just give you some, uh, also some instruction about some of the things you can do to help these people grow. So let's go ahead and dig into Titus. I'm going to just go ahead and start where Paul did in this letter. This is initially a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Paul said, this letter's from Paul, a slave of God, and an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them how to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. If you're underlining stuff, that's important. We're talking about how do we make people to be truly good, godly people? This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now, at just the right time, he's revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It's by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I'm writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Now Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. Okay, so let's just go ahead and pause there because I'd like to just get the big picture view. In fact, that's what we're doing today. We're flying at 30,000 feet over Titus. If you're a little bit unfamiliar with the Bible, that's okay. We're just gonna take it right as it is before us. And as the, the weeks go on in the series, we'll dig a little bit deeper into this. So if you got more questions, feel free to just hit me with them after church or email me, write them on one of those comment cards in the chair. If you're watching online, welcome by the way. And just uh, go ahead and submit the online connect card. Just say, hey, when you were talking about this, what does this mean? Or I was reading Titus and it said this, feel free to, we'll get into that in the next several weeks. But so it's a letter from Paul. Who's Paul? Go back to verse one. How does he describe himself? Two ways. I'm a slave of God, and you kind of understand what a slave is. He's saying, I do whatever God wants me to do, but he says, I'm also an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, what's an apostle? Yeah, so we, we've been talking about this a few weeks ago, and I remember thinking at that time that I ought to talk about this, that sometimes people get the word disciple and apostle confused when you're reading the Bible, because they sound very similar, and sometimes they're used about the same person, like Jesus had 12 disciples, but they're also called apostles. What's the difference? So a, a disciple is anyone who is a student or an apprentice. So if you're trying to learn about Jesus, you're a disciple. Even if you're not yet a Christian, you can be a disciple because you have to learn before you commit your life to Jesus. So if, if you're a learner, you're a disciple. But an apostle is a 
special kind of leader. It's someone who's sent with authority by the person who sent them. So if you are an apostle, like Paul says he is himself, he gets to go with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, and you have a message that you carry. And Paul said it's the message of eternal life that we're carrying. We're now authorized to tell people, you can have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with God, and I have permission to tell you that you're welcome to be part of it. And as an apostle, Paul puts himself on the same level as the other apostles, like James and John and uh, Peter and Andrew and all the other original 12 that Jesus chose. Paul was not one of the first 12 that Jesus chose. In fact, the early part of Paul's life, he went around chasing down Christians and arresting them, and he may have been responsible for some of their deaths. And he had actually had an encounter with Jesus that completely changed his mind about Jesus, and he became a Christian, which is one of the biggest flips in all of history. Uh, the guy who used to kill Christians becomes one. And now Paul's out there going through the world, trying to make up for lost time. He's starting churches everywhere. At some point, he started a bunch of churches on the island of Crete. And now he, the apostle, has sent Titus, a younger pastor and leader, to go back to Crete to work with all these churches that they'd started. Now, who's Titus? As I say, he's a younger pastor, very gifted, very trusted by Paul. Paul calls him like, I love him like my own son. I don't know if Paul maybe even led him to Jesus and baptized him. Paul trusted him with the church at Corinth. And if you go back and read Corinthians in your Bible, you're like, that place is a hot mess. Why? And he threw Titus in there to clean it up. He trusted Titus that much. He's a young guy, but he's a very sharp, gifted leader. And I, so he puts his best person on his biggest problems. Titus, I need you to go to Crete and straighten stuff out there. Well, what is Crete? I don't know if you're geographically interested or not, but if you are, if you picture the Mediterranean, we actually have a picture up here of it. If you think of where Greece sticks into the Mediterranean, Crete is just right off the coast of Greece to the southeast. And then we got it circled up. Yeah, it's a beautiful island. If you want to go there for vacation, like if you're going to Greece anyway, which is an affordable trip, by the way, and you go there, it's got great beaches. It's got mountains that have snow on them. Now, the thing about Crete 2,000 years ago is this this little island. You think, well, how big is it? Titus has got all these churches to go through. So if you put the eastern edge of Crete, like on St. Louis, down at the arch and just start driving, by the time you get to Mizzou and Columbia, you will have gotten to the west end of Crete. It's like 135 135 miles long, so it's this little island, beautiful place. But the people who lived there at least 2,000 years ago weren't so pretty. The people who lived there were kind of a hot mess, honestly. L- listen to how Paul described them to Timothy. This is uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about the Cretans, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, and this is true. <laughs> he says, hey, just throw them under the bus. But that's what they were like. If I could compare the people of Crete in that culture, they had a reputation through the whole world. Uh, anybody a soccer fan? You heard of the Manchester United Soccer Club in England and in, in the UK? They have a horrible reputation. Or let's bring it a little closer home. Any NFL fans? How about the, the Raiders? You know, these two fan clubs are known as having the worst reputation for being the worst fans in the, the world. That's uh, Manchester United. They're teaching France how to party after a soccer game. And we got the Raiders here, I think, as well. Maybe. There we are. So when you think of Crete, just think the worst of humanity. And that's the Cretans. In fact, we, don't you ever say that about somebody? You're such a Cretan. If you haven't, there you go. You've got a new insult to use at Thanksgiving. You're welcome. <laughs> and to be fair, Cretans liked having that reputation. They enjoyed, they, they gloried in being bad people. 
Now, so picture this. Somehow, someway, as Paul has gone through Crete, starting churches, people accepted the message of Jesus Christ and said, hey, I'm in for that. But you probably know this. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean all your problems go away and you become a perfect person who never does anything wrong ever again. They, they brought all their bad habits into the church. Uh, they didn't grow up immediately. So that's what Titus has to do. Paul says, I need you to go through and start helping these people figure out what it means to be a Christian. You got all these ungodly people who need to be restored and brought up to the level where God wants their life to be. Uh, I think I've told you this before. One of the things I like watching on YouTube is restoration videos. And what I mean by that is there's different people who are pretty good with their hands and with tools, and they'll take old tools or old restaurant equipment or uh, old toys, preferably 100 years old or older, and they'll just restore them. And I just love that process. My family will actually say, Dad, you don't really watch restoration videos. You fall asleep to restoration videos on YouTube. Truth hurts, it might be true, but uh, I think we might actually have an example running here while I'm talking. It's just a beautiful thing to take something that's old rusty and it's been laying in somebody's barn for about a hundred years and just to see the process where it goes from unusable and something that you would just throw into the dumpster. And then over time, to just see as somebody uses the right tools and a little WD-40 and a little bit of effort and maybe a grinder and maybe some sandpaper, love the slant sandblaster. You should go this afternoon, go to YouTube, just Google, like I like Mr. Patina, that's who you were watching there just a second ago. And uh, just watch him use the sandblaster. It's one of the most peaceful things you'll ever see. And at the end, you see the before and you see the after and you go, you know, it's not like I could just go out and buy this new but it's all the more glorious for having been broken and restored. And I think that's what God feels about us. Yes, we are broken people, but man, if God can restore you, if he can restore a Cretan and go, look, it was broken and look at the beautiful thing I made out of this person's life. So I have a question for you as we go ahead and finish this out today. How exactly does God restore a person's life? And let's just take it in terms of a restorer. What kind of tools does Titus have in his toolbox and on his tool belt to restore people in these churches as he goes from church to church? Well, as I read through Titus, I found a few things. I'm just going to point them out to you. If you're a person who takes notes, you can write this down. If you're jotting it down in your phone, the first thing I saw when I was looking through this is that God uses godly leaders to restore people's lives. I'm going to go back to uh, verse five. We just already read it. I'll just read it again. Paul said, Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our, complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. Each town would have a church. The church needed elders. Apparently they'd moved through so quickly they didn't have time to establish this high-level leader. You might say, well, what is an elder? Well, an elder is a certain kind of a leader in a church that's responsible for the whole church. One of the words that describes what an elder does is that you're a shepherd. A shepherd takes care of sheep. So an elder in a church protects the church from a false teaching. An elder works with the people in the church and cares for them. An elder does a lot of just one-on-one -on -one mentoring with people. And you see this in the job description because Paul tells Titus, here's the kind of person you're looking for when you go into each church. And it, this isn't gonna be on the screen. I'm just gonna go through that very quickly. He says like, uh, when you're looking for an elder in those churches, you need to look for somebody who has a blameless life. Now I'm gonna pause right there because this gives a lot of people pause. They go like, well, I can't be an elder because I'm not blameless. Do you really think anybody who came out of the Cretan culture was blameless either? Does this mean like perfect? You've never ever done anything wrong in your life? 
That's not what it means. It just means there's nothing currently going on there. We go, well, why did you pick that person to be an elder? They're obviously doing this, this, and this. You're just nothing blatant that's going on. Uh, not a reputation for being wild or rebellious. The family is well-behaved. Because another thing that Titus was told is, look at how the elder currently leads his family. If he's not doing a good job raising his own kids, how are you going to trust him with all the people in the church? And you want to make sure that they're not quick-tempered, not a heavy drinker, not violent, not dishonest with money, uh, loves what is good, able to teach, strong belief in the truth of the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says, this is just what it means to be an elder. You're a good person that other people can look to and follow your example. And I look at that, and I think this is one of the things that uh, just kind of marks a good church. There are good people, good elders, good men who step forward and say, I, I think I'm gifted to do this. There's all kinds of leaders in a church, and an elder is a special kind of leader who says, I want to take responsibility for the health and well-being of a church. But there are other people who lead in a church as well. Like you go down to verse 1, it, Paul just says this, As for you, Titus, you need to promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So the church has a, a leader like Titus, who just kind of as a first among equals, who's working with everyone, just saying, look, I'm trying to set the best example I can. So if you're trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, you can look at me, especially those of us who are trying to lead others. And then he goes down in verse two, and he says, Titus, you need to do some mentoring with the old men. Teach the older men to self exercise self-control, be worthy of respect, live wisely, have a sound faith, and be filled with love and patience. And then he goes on in verse 3, and he says, Similarly, teach the older women to, teach and to, to live in a way that honors God, not to be slandering others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. I have a question. What constitutes an older man or an older woman? Careful. I guess I'll let you self-select. To me, it's just somebody who's older than me. That's, a, that's old. When I was a kid, I, there's people I just thought, I, I, I looked up to them, I thought they were so old, and now I see them on Facebook, and I'm thinking, like, how are you still alive? And then I realized they were probably like 30 when I thought they were really old. Old is relative, right? You're older than someone else. But the older men and older women, Titus, you got to work with them because they have a job. They're setting an example for the other people in the church. Now, how about the, uh, the younger women in the church? Who teaches them? Let's look down at verse 3. Uh, let's see, I'm sorry, this is down in uh, verse 4. The older women must train the younger women. There's this idea, and then you go down on further, I think it's in verse 5. Paul tells Titus, now you teach the younger men. But there's this idea that in the church, that you have elders, you have leaders, but you can also just look to the people who are a little bit older than you in the faith, a little bit further around the track than you are in life, and you should be able to look to them to get an idea of, how do I raise my kids? How do I deal with them when they become teenagers? How do I handle my finances? What does the next stage of my life look like? There should be somebody that you look to, and they're still trying to figure it out themselves, but we're trying to mentor each other. There's a lot of mentoring, and uh, down in verse 7, Paul just says to Titus, you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything that you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. I want to ask you to think about who has shaped your life. Are there older people in your life that have had a hand in helping you become who you are now? You ought to reach out to them and say thank you. All of us, there's coaches, there's teachers, there's Sunday school teachers, there's leaders, there's just people in every area of your life. There's people at work who took a little bit of time to explain some things to you. There's just something about mentoring. 
I know that I am the person that I am and I'm the leader that I am because there were people in my life who were willing to just point things out to me or they don't even know that they were an example to me. I was just watching them. I never actually told them. I just learned how to do things and I picked up some of the things that I really loved. Like, man, these people are just really good at taking care of each other and their family. I wanna be like that. Do you do that? And one of the things I love about connection is how good you all are at doing this. Because there's this idea that in a healthy church, we do mentor each other. Like yesterday, we just had this women's conference, Kindred Spirits. I think that was fantastic. I know a lot of you were at it. I see the t-shirts and you say, Brian, why were you at a women's conference? Were you? Well, I'll tell you why. Because one of the best teachers that I know, Ginger Bowden, was speaking. If Ginger's speaking, I'm going to be there. And I also, I just want to support this idea that as a church, the older teach the younger. And there were some great classes going on here. And I just like that, that you all were able to think about what is it that I do? What is it that I need to grow in? And you were willing to give up some time to come here and teach or just to be a part of it. And I will tell you, if you think, well, I'm not a leader, so therefore I'm off the hook, you're not. You can be 12 years old and there's a 10 year old who's looking at you figuring out what life is supposed to look like when they get to be your age. You're never off the hook. There's always someone who's watching you thinking about, well, what am I supposed to be like? So if you're a Christian, this is just on you to think about how do I present myself in a way that actually is worth following? Now, Paul goes on and uh, he, he says a little bit more here. And I love this, this thought. He says that, you know, yeah, here it is. And this, like in verse six, where he says, in the same way, encourage young men to live wisely. In, in verse seven, you yourself must be example to them by doing good works of every kind and let your, everything you do reflect the integrity and the seriousness of your teaching. You know, I think about this big situation that Titus walked into. And it just occurs to me when God's got a problem that he wants to solve, he doesn't send a program. He sends a person got these churches that just need some help. And God sent Titus. And I'm wondering if there's somebody that needs just what you bring to the mix. And whether you know it or not, they're looking at you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I want you to feel the weight of responsibility because it just settled on your shoulders. And you say, well, that's not fair. I've been a Christian for five minutes. All right, you're a model to the people who aren't yet Christians but are thinking about it. This is just what we do in family. Now, let me go on here. Number two, God uses something else to change us. He uses good biblical teaching, just beyond good leaders. Like in verse nine of chapter one, Paul said, an elder must have a good, strong belief in the trustworthy message that he was taught. And then he'll be able to encourage others with this wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. And so, Excuse me. One of the things that good teaching does is it just corrects some of the things you've picked up from the people around you that you didn't need to pick up because we do pick up bad habits and bad thoughts and bad you know, examples from other people as well as the good stuff. And so good teaching corrects that. You may have thought, well, my whole life I've always thought this is how things are, but now I'm starting to hear some things that make me question that. And that's a good thing about exposing yourself to good teaching. It just, it challenges you in a way that makes you go, uh, maybe I've thought wrong about this. Like, for example, in 1 Timothy 6.3, Paul was talking to another pastor, and he said, Timothy, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are wholesome teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these teachings promote a godly life. 
And I, I love what he wrote to the Colossian church. He said to these people, we've not stopped praying for you since we heard about you. And we ask God to give you a complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then this is the way you'll always live to honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And all the while you'll grow as you learn to know God better and better. You know, false teaching leads to bad living. Good, wholesome teaching leads to good living. I imagine what it must have been like for the people on Crete to be taught some things from the, the perspective of faith. Imagine growing up in a culture that celebrated lying, where you really were taught that if you get one over on someone else, that's a good thing from the earliest age. I, I, you think about this, there was somebody said, I don't remember who, I wish I gave him credit, said if you're in a poor country, but you realize that you don't have to count your change after every transaction, that country is gonna do okay because they've got an honest culture. There's a, an element of trust. You don't have to worry about they're shorting you your change whenever you buy something. And Crete was not like that at all, but the Christians in that church started to get that way. People growing up their whole lives thinking it's okay to just lie to each other start to go, well, maybe not. Maybe they heard a teach like, teaching like this that's found in Ephesians 4. Stop telling lives, lies. Let's tell our neighbors the truth. We're all parts of the same body. A culture that appreciated taking things from other people. Verse 28 and 29. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful. Just correcting all the things they'd been raised with that their parents had taught them their whole life. And maybe you need some of this too. Maybe there's some things that you've grown up with and your family taught you that just aren't that healthy. And you need to learn a new way that's not dysfunctional. You need to learn a new way that's more godly. It's okay. We're all here together. None of us are perfect. We're all growing. We're all changing. We're all learning. And I, I love this. I just want to brag on you all a little bit. I have no qualms at all about inviting somebody to my Connection family because, like I said, I know you're not perfect, but I know that you all are going to welcome the people that I bring and vice versa. If you bring someone, I know they're going to have a good experience here. I firmly believe that they're going to be better off than when they first came here because I know that you're gonna love them. We're gonna help challenge each other. We're gonna share our lives together. We're gonna grow together. We're gonna study this together. It just highlights the importance of being in a small group together where you can actually ask questions of each other and you can challenge each other and you can get to know each other. And I think over time, you'll find that as you let this and the Holy Spirit working within you be the center of your life, you're gonna change and you're gonna grow and you're gonna find yourself thinking differently about things. And it brings me just to the last thing that I think God uses to change a person's life. And it's God himself. You know, he uses godly leaders and he uses biblical teaching, but it's really God himself who does all the heavy lifting in your life. And some of you have been a Christian long enough to know that's the truth. Because if it wasn't for God making some changes in your life, it never would have happened. I like what uh, Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11. I'm actually going to read this out of the NIV translation. I think it's more accurate and it's beautiful. It says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. And you can underline this, people who are eager to do what is good. It's a real point of what Jesus himself came here to do. And I love it when he says the grace of God has appeared. Because he's so gracious, and he's so kind, and he's patient, and he teaches us to say no to ungodly things and to say yes to the right things. And I think about what I told you just a minute ago. You know, you think about when God wants to change a person, he doesn't send a program, he sends a person. 
When God wanted to change all of us, he sent a capital P person. He himself came here. Jesus became one of us, lived the perfect life that none of us ever could, but in so doing, set an example that we can live up to and provided the power to actually change. Because you and I both know that good intentions are only gonna take you so far. Willpower, it gives out. You got strong desire to be a good person, the only way I know to help you do that, because I love you, but I can't transform your life. I can't give you purpose and meaning and hope, but Jesus can do all those things. And when you say yes to Jesus, God himself literally comes to live within you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you find in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. And he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. You're gonna be good in your future. God promises it. You will be changed, you will transform, you will do the right thing for the right reason every single time. You may not feel like it's happening quick enough. You may not think it will ever happen, but your future is good. God promised it. The Holy Spirit's gonna make it happen. And God's been thinking about your future a whole lot longer than you have. And he's a whole lot more smarter than I am and than you are. And this will be your future if you'll let it. As Paul told Titus, I'm paraphrasing here, but grace has now entered the chat. There's a whole new way of living life. And if you're willing to open up your heart to it, he'll teach you how to live it. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment. I want you, even before I start praying, to already be thinking about what it is that you need to do with this message because there's something that God's calling on you to do. There's a place where you need to step forward. And maybe for you, it's that just initial step and say, I'm in. I wanna be a Christian. I need to be a follower of Jesus. I can't change my life on my own. And we're here to help you do that. Maybe as a Christian, you just kind of had the, you know, you're in the car, but you crank the emergency brake on and you're kind of dragging your feet about what God wants you to do and change in your life. Let's just give up on that and let's just give control to God and let him start working with you on those areas of your life where you need to say, I need to shift my thinking. And he's a patient teacher and he will help you and we'll help each other and we'll get there. Let me pray for you now. Father, I'm so thankful for the love you have for us. And as I just read these words, I see for 2,000 years, Jesus, you've got a great track record of changing people's lives. And I am so filled with hope. And I want everyone here and everybody who's experienced this online just to feel from you that hope that there is a great future ahead of us and that there is a, a, a love from you that in the meantime just fills over and forgives all of the things where we fall short. And we come to you and we know that we do fall short. So we, we are asking for your forgiveness. We ask for you to give us strength to do the next right thing. I pray that as we spend time learning from your word, that you will just honor that by showing us some things that we would never have figured out on our own. The Holy Spirit, that you will help us to feel what we need to do and actually empower us to do it. I pray this in, in Jesus' name, amen.